This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our Relationship Story Hour, as always brought to us by the great folks at Communio, and you can reach them at Communio.org. And as always told by our own in-house expert and marriage guy, J.P. DeGance, and he's the founder of Communio. And we turn now to J.P. for this week's story. Chris and Miko are marriage coaches with Live the Life, a key partner for Communio. They both grew up with loving families, but families that express their love in different ways. Miko had two affectionate parents. Chris had a mother who loved him, but a father that was not in the picture. Chris's mom worked tremendously hard and was professionally successful, and she was always there to support him financially and what he wanted to do. I wanted to do it, she would pay for it, and it was a no-brainer, but I didn't stick to anything. And because of that, I think I lost a little bit of my identity. And um, I tell the story to anyone that's willing to listen. I, have a, I own a blue bat today. And this blue bat was a bat that my mother purchased for me when I was probably 10, 11 years of age playing baseball. And I often struck out, uh, just didn't have uh, good bat speed. Didn't really have any coaches that pulled me to the side. I wasn't going to any of the drills or wasn't participating in any camps. I just kept playing baseball and kept striking out. Um, Long story short, when you fast forward, I realized when I purchased that bat, the reason I got the bat was because of the color. Blue is my favorite color. And my mother was at the store with me, allowed me to get the bat of my choice. We went to the register, purchased it. Well, fast forwarding, I was playing baseball with a softball bat. So a kid ill-equipped having a tool, but not the right tool for the right event. So having confidence as a young boy, becoming a young man, being raised by a single mother, being raised by the village, if you will, but still missing out on that father, meant quite a bit. The differences in how Chris and Miko were raised meant they had some very different models of how adults show love. Not having a close, touchy-feely, very affectionate family, marrying Miko and seeing how her family carries themselves when they're around one another was fascinating and quite foreign to me. I didn't see my grandparents show any sense of affection in terms of a kiss until I was in my 20s, almost 30s. Whereas Miko's family, I saw her uncle and her grandfather, these two big, robust men kissing each other. And I'm like, what is going on? So Miko enjoys the, the, the affectionate side that I didn't really get as a kid. Chris naturally shows his deep love through service and financial generosity, because that's what he received as a child. Miko gave and received love a different way, through physical touch. That is my number one love language. 
And I, I was perplexed for years by why I would find myself in an emotional ditch on the side of the road in our relationship from time to time. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Here it is, Chris is an amazing person. He is, a, he's a great husband. He serves me in ways that I didn't even think that I needed to be served in. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal father. Miko, why, why do you not feel loved? You know, why is your love tank low? And it was once we began to engage in this work that I realized that physical touch is my primary language. And for him, it's number one for me, and it's like the last one on the list for him. So even though he was doing, he's this amazing person in all these other areas, the one area that I needed him to be the most amazing in, it didn't come natural to him and he didn't realize that he had to be very intentional in that area. And it wasn't like he was withholding, but I think for me, it was the revelation of understanding that this is what I needed. And then articulating that in a way that he could understand and then show me love in a way that was meaningful to me. Chris and Miko also brought different views of money into marriage. But just as they've worked through issues about how they each give and receive love, they've each developed restraint and communication skills so that they grow closer even through disagreement. Chris and I were having a financial conversation and we were in the kitchen. And as he's sharing, I can feel my emotions kicking in and ramping up. And I make a statement and then he says to me, basically, okay, I can see already. He said, I can tell by the look on your face. I wasn't listening to him. So he was sharing his feelings and his thoughts and he could tell by my tone and what I said and the look on my face that he was not being heard. And in that moment, I'm talking, it was seconds that the following occurred. I paused. Miko, you're not listening. You're allowing your emotions to override your thinking. Lean in and listen to what Chris is telling you. So I apologized and I said, I am so sorry. You're right. I, I really wasn't listening to what you said. I was just focusing on what I wanted to share. And, and I'm doing, I'm saying this, I'm still emotionally wired, but I'm making a choice to honor us and him by allowing him to share and me to listen and then paraphrasing back so that I make sure that I heard what he said we wound up having a really great conversation we didn't solve anything but he was heard and what important words we didn't solve anything but he was heard and when we come back we're going to hear more from Chris and Miko and our Relationship Story Hour is always brought to us by the great folks at Communio. And we're looking for your stories, too, folks. A marriage healed, a marriage repaired. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. More with Chris and Miko. Their stories. Here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with Our American Stories, and we've been listening to J.P. DeGans tell the story of Miko and Chris. And this story is brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Communio. Go to communio.org to learn more. And if you're a member of a church or a community group of any kind, uh, look them up, because marriage is, well, a quarter or maybe even a half are all around us, need help, maybe more. And we can help each other and change the country one community at a time. And now we return to Chris and Miko's story and J.P. DeGans. While Miko expresses her love through touch, Chris shows his affection in a different way. Serving is my background. I love serving others. My occupation, uh, different non nonprofits that I support, but more importantly, my wife and my kids. I enjoy making their lives better because I feel as if that was my, that's my responsibility. Sometimes it's to my detriment because it drives me crazy, but some of that's on me as well as to, once again, not having certain things in my life early on, I can sometimes try to overcompensate. Um, so I have to be careful of that as well because I think some dads, some men can get into the trap of trying to do too much because well, I didn't have this, so let me make up. This wasn't done for me, so let me try it. Well, I didn't see this in my, you know, so I have to be mindful of that. Miko's always understood and appreciated her husband's love expressed through service. And they had talked about how she wanted more physical touch in addition to that. But they were still not on the same wavelength. When we, you know, I've been sharing with Chris about, you know, me wanting uh, non-sexual physical touch. So he thinks he's doing a great job. And I was not feeling you know, the, the love, if, if you will. And so we were having this conversation and he said, oh my goodness, I feel like it'll never be enough because he was making an effort. Well, the problem was he was speaking my language, but not my dialect. So I speak English. I have a girlfriend from New Jersey. She speaks English, but her English and my English are not the, the same. The dialect is different. So yes, he would give me a hug, but it was this five second church lady hug. Okay, that I'm sorry, that doesn't ring my bell. I need a 30 second full on embrace. And so just that, that coaching that he was open to, he, he was like, okay, I can do that. Now, let me just say, that initially the 30 seconds his body was was quite stiff and tense and i had to remind myself miko this doesn't come naturally for chris he is loving you intentionally and so you're going to have to be patient with him okay i got it you know um so it's been a process but honoring you know i want celebrating his heart to serve me in that way and then making the effort again we're not, you know, on the mountaintop with that yet, but we are definitely not where we used to be. So first off, no one needs a 30-second hug. <laughs> and I would say, <laughs> yes, it is true. I have to improve in that area. So speaking to the men out there that might also struggle with this, I would say, 
baby steps. Do not become overwhelmed as I have. Uh, learn from my mistake, but it is something that once again, being intentional, hearing the heart of your spouse and in confidence and in faith and belief, you can to get there. But on the other hand, I think it's important for, in this case, Miko and any wives out there that may have the same issue to be patient with us in a loving way. Yes. Um, to encourage us in that area because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, not seeing my grandparents show any affection, that was the marriage that I was around the most. I never really saw them hug. They loved each other and it was evident beyond belief because my grandfather served my grandmother until the day he died. And that's where I think I picked up my servant, um, my servant mentality or, or perspective. However, and, his, and my grandmother gave my grandfather the business. She was very clear with what she wanted. She was very direct. I almost think of myself as that we're a modern day of my grandmother and my grandfather. You know, I just had that revelation. Yes, I think so. Yes, I think that, that is, I, I think that's the case. But with that, being intentional, recognizing that is an opportunity where I can be better, but yet it comes with, you know, a level of patience and prayer and, 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 and encouragement. As they have matured individually and as spouses, Chris and Miko have sought to love one another in the way that they can best receive it. Are we going to choose to be emotionally mature adults and give our mates what they need, even if it's not a need that I have. Wow, that's powerful. Throughout their marriage and over many moves, Chris and Miko were active in children's ministry. When they came to Jacksonville, they decided to branch out and start working with engaged and married couples. Marriage ministry can be intimidating and sensitive. It's easy to feel ill-equipped. Miko helps dispel some of those feelings. And you don't have to have any special skills to have the heart to impact another married couple. If you are, you know, in a marital relationship and it's, you know, relatively healthy and I don't say perfect because there are no perfect marriages because there are no perfect people, but just doing life with another couple can can impact can make an impact beyond your wildest dreams you know we we've been married for long enough and been around enough couples to know that a lot of couples aren't having as much fun as we're having you know their their hearts aren't really tender toward their spouses and you know there 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 is opportunity there to to serve other couples and marriages and so we literally jumped in uh, our church was partnered with live the life who has been in the marriage ministry space for over 20 years in, in Florida. And we became certified in everything we could become certified in. And it also enriched our own marital relationship um, as well as that of just other relationships because what we teach applies to any relationship. What I've learned, we, we are all called to relationships. We're not all called to marriage, but we are all called to relationships. And so, 
once we and we started working with premarital couples those that was the group that we started with so couples who are still you know in that their high on love phase and and um, had a, having an opportunity to help to encourage them, equip them with some tools while the, the cement is still wet in their relationships, if you will. And from there, began to work with married couples. And we did that for about a year, year and a half, just serving and loving and facilitating workshops and hosting small groups in our homes. Um, we find that when people are in community like that, they will open up and they will share. We were, we're we are very transparent people, and so we that allowed others to feel safe that they could share with us. And from there, there was an opportunity with Live the Life. There was a position available. I was looking for a job, and it was just a divine appointment. I, I jokingly say, you know, I now get paid to do what I was doing for free before. And it has been amazing. One of the relationships that's been most impacted by my jump into this relationship education space has been that with my 17 year old daughter. You know, again, all relationships require the same ingredients, if you will, to be healthy and whole. And you've been listening to Chris and Miko Page. And this is our Relationship Story Hour, brought to us by the great folks at Communio. And by the way, J.P. DeGance and Communio lowered the divorce rates in Duval County in Florida 30% over three years. And that's why we're bringing this to you. Um, so many married couples, well, they're having problems. They don't know where to go to. The problems aren't unbelievably terrible. But they're there and they're lingering. And, well... We like to bring these stories to you because they're manageable. And listen to the excitement in Miko's voice and even Chris's as they try to navigate their differences together. When we come back, more with the Pages story, our relationship story hour, here on Our American Stories. continue here with our American stories and our relationship story hour and you know we were just batting this around this isn't an advice hour on relationships because my goodness who wants advice it's through these stories that we learn about ourselves and relate to others and not many couples share raw stories about their marriage or about their finances these are things people lie to their best friends about and maybe even themselves so let's return to the pages story and brought to us, as always, by Communio, the great folks at Communio. You can get them and reach them at communio.org. And their founder, J.P. DeGantz. We left off with Pages, having just joined the marriage ministry life and lived the life, one of the great marriage ministries in this country. Back to J.P. Chris and Miko are now all in with Live the Life and marriage ministry. Chris has really enjoyed working with the husbands of these couples. 
Some of these couples, you know, you learn almost more than what you are teaching because it's kind of like a teach back moment. And, uh, but it's just so fascinating to be able to walk through life with a man that's struggling with an issue similar to me, but 10 years ago or an issue that I've never encountered and how do we do life together now that he is in this situation, but feeling I'm a part of that now and how do I help him? I think oftentimes what I've learned through this process, men are reluctant to share. Men have been very reserved for various reasons. Some it goes back to their childhood, some it could just be their temperament, some it's pride and a host of other issues. But the more, as men, the more we as men talk to each other and share that really you're no different than the next guy. Your issue may not be my issue, but I have an issue just like you. You might could help me with my issue as I'm helping you with yours. And nothing less than at least the encouragement and affirmation of another man joining with another man to help. Because we feel as if we have it together. We feel as if we're invincible. We feel as if we're Thor, Superman, Batman, whatever character you want to. It's okay. We all have cracks. And those cracks can be cemented with love by another man helping you, strengthening you. One thing that Chris has learned firsthand and through coaching other men is the importance of hearing each other out. Encouragement and affirmation, very strong a very strong point for men to have that from their wives. Even if the idea is as crazy as we need to spend $20,000 on something that she knows is completely crazy. But just the fact that you hear, hear it out, understand the reason for the request or even the thought. Maybe there's something that goes back to that man's childhood and he's always wanted to do that. And right now might not be the right time. He in turn will realize that because of other pointers or points that you will probably share with him. But the fact of hearing it out, letting him clear his thoughts, letting him just speak to his creativity, his vision, his wish, because I don't think any man wants their dreams to be crushed especially being crushed by their spouse. This shows a love and respect for one another that goes a long way. Not only do Chris and Miko work through serious discussions, they also like to have fun together. One night, Miko wanted to go to a game night with some other couples, but Chris, having had a busy week, and really being a bit more introverted, wasn't so keen on it. So we get there and, you know, I'm already observing like, okay, what kind of event is this going to be? And how long will it last? I'm looking at the watch, but minute by minute, event by event, I, we stayed there almost three hours and I did not want to leave to the point. It was so much fun laughing at each other. We were, uh, from three-legged race to, we were playing badminton and we were the champs. We got five trophies, line dancing, which is something Miko enjoys dancing. So we got a chance to check that, that box as well. She won the line dancing contest. Uh, we were playing against other couples with, on badminton to the point where we were the only ones there. No, we were just waiting on anybody to come and challenge us because we, 
we had played so well and it was just phenomenal and I was exhausted and I was sweating but I didn't want to leave because I had just the grandest of times. Much of what Chris and Miko have built in their own beautiful relationship, they now teach through Live the Life. There are many different exercises to help couples stay connected. They can help couples in crisis establish a clear path to improving their marriage. But this isn't limited to marriages in so-called trouble. The same tools can improve an already great marriage. In either case, the ongoing investment into the relationship is what's key. Here's one of Miko's favorite exercises that any one of us can use, a way to regularly build connection with our spouse. So it's the daily temperature reading and you start off with appreciations. And so you're sharing one thing you appreciate your spouse for. And it doesn't have to be an activity or something they did. It could be who they are, an aspect of their character or personality. Then you have new information. So you're sharing, yeah, hey, you know, something happened that you'd want to share that would be impactful to your mate or your relationship. You've got puzzles. Puzzles could be anything from, I'm curious by the tone that you took with me earlier today, is everything okay? Or I'm puzzled by what's going on with my mom. She hasn't been feeling well. So it's something that impacts you. Your spouse may be able to clear that puzzle up or not, but at least you're, you're, you're sharing that so that your spouse knows what's going on with you. Then you have complaints with requests for change. That is the constructive way to share with your mate a complaint that you have. And so it'll sound something like this. I noticed, Chris, that you leave your shoes in the middle of the floor. I'd rather you put them in the closet on your side. Done. So I've stated my complaint and the activity or the request that I would like to see or how I'd like to see that, that be different. And it's only one complaint with request for change. Um, also, um, and it's small. It's not something nuclear, but you know, something small. Then you have wishes, hopes, and dreams. Or um, again, this is where you're sharing what, what's on your heart. What are you hoping for? What do you wish you know, life would look like for yourself or for us or our family? And then prayer requests. Um, prayer is like glue for your marital relationship. And so you would share a prayer request with your mate. It could be a prayer request about anything that's on your heart. And then right there, your spouse prays for you. And so you go back and forth in like you're playing tennis. One person shares an appreciation, then the other person, one shares person shares new information. Um, and so really that takes about seven minutes. It can spark conversation, but we encourage couples to take the conversation outside of the tool. So once you get through with the tool, you can have the conversation because you're starting on a high note and you're ending on a high note. In the middle of this daily temperature reading, couples also have the opportunity to apologize to each other. Whatever their disagreements, the husband and wife remain on the same team. We're fighting for us, not fighting for me, not fighting for you, but it's fighting for us. And hearing that, once again, listening, being intentional, and ensuring that, uh, once again, we're not dirty fighting, which could ultimately surface and creep up, but planning in advance. Here's when we're having DTR. As Miko said, there's a beginning, middle, and end. 
and it's coming from a good place and it's nothing like ending on a positive note about dreams, hopes, desires, and then literally praying for one another. We have enough in society destroying and tearing marriages down. Why can't we uplift each other? And no matter what your faith, background, belief, everyone wants to have a healthy, happy marital relationship. We all have that in common. And thanks to Chris and Miko, and thanks to J.P. DeGance and Communio. Again, go to communio.org, our relationship story hour here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to your stories. Send them to us at OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll produce them up and put them on the airwaves. Some of our very best pieces have come from you. The American people have, well, you all have great stories to tell and beautiful voices from all over this great country. It's been multiple decades since a nine-year-old kid shared his Coca-Cola with Pittsburgh Steelers star Mean Joe Green in one of the most famous commercials in American history. Most of us have seen that commercial many times, but the story behind the ad is just as great. Here's Greg Hengler. Joe Green was one of the most feared defenders in NFL history. In 13 seasons as defensive tackle with the Pittsburgh Steelers, the 6'4", 275-pound Joe Green was a 10-time Pro Bowler and a 2-time Defensive Player of the Year. He became an NFL icon and a first ballot Hall of Famer. And then there's that name. Here's teammates Franco Harris and Andy Russell. Is there a better name than Mean Joe Green? I mean, that name just flows. And I ask kids about that, and I say, Mean? And they say, Joe Green. He asked me one time, he said, Andy, why do they call me Mean? And I said, because you're mean. (laughs) Here's Steelers chairman Dan Rooney. We're playing in Philadelphia, and Philadelphia has the ball. And if they can make a first time, the game's over. They made it. They made the first time. And he went up, took the football, and threw it in the stands. And I said to my father, this guy's special. If he's that intense, that he's going to do something like that, we got a guy that we want. Some people ask that question, what does Joe really mean? Yeah, that was the perfect name for him. He hated to lose. That was part of his demeanor. He's here to win. He's here to beat that guy across from him. And he's not going to be nice about it. 
But inside the man who was the centerpiece of the steel curtain defense that led the Pittsburgh Steelers to four Super Bowl championships in six years was something unseen by the public eye. Here's Joe Green giving us a peek. When I was a senior in high school, my class voted me to be class president. And I declined. I think about that a lot. And it was basically because I was shy and didn't want to have to talk in front of the class or the student body. (laughs) But in 1979, Green's rugged public persona and life changed dramatically after being selected for a television commercial by Madison Avenue creative wizard, Penny Hockey. We were asked to do an exploratory, that is to take the Coca-Cola brand and see where else it could go in its communications. The guys were sitting there saying, okay, well, who could we get? Well, we could get Lynn Swan, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Mean Joe Green. And I said, wait, there's a guy called Mean Joe Green? Is he mean? And they said, yeah. And I said, well, that's perfect. We want the most intimidating human being we can find. And boy, did we get it. We wrote about 10 different storylines, and the very first one that we came up with was, let's take kind of a pathetic little kid who's just awestruck over some kind of superstar football hero. Uh, The kid has nothing to offer except he has the Coca-Cola. He gives the superstar the Coca-Cola, the superstar drinks it, shazam, he's a changed person. In the commercial, Mean Joe would have a memorable encounter with a trembling nine-year-old named Tommy Okan. My mom and my dad were both in television. As to our future weather, well, we expect the rain to... My mom was on-air talent. My dad was a director and a producer. I had started doing commercials probably when I was around five or so. So by the time we did the co-commercial, I had probably done about 30 or 40 commercials up to that point. Let's go. Keep it up. I think you fumbled. <laughs> And the first day when we shot the commercial, there was a lot of downtime because they were doing a lot of work to the set. And uh, because of that, there wasn't a lot to do. So, of course, I had brought a football and went over to Joe and asked if he'd throw a football around. And he said, sure. He developed a sweet little relationship with Tommy and made Tommy much more comfortable. Okay. Now, giving the line, Joe. Okay. Got it. They were trying to get him to drink the whole Coke. And they had him maybe do that a couple of times and just said they were gonna the guy was gonna blow up after a while. He went through an awful lot of soda. And you know the the legend of course that he drank eighteen sixteen ounce bottles, equivalent to two and a quarter gallons. (laughs) Needless to say, when I start to shoot, the first thing out of my mouth was a big burp. Talk about absolutely perfect timing. Super Bowl programs. Super Bowl souvenirs. Super Bowl pennants. The commercial ran on the Super Bowl, and then they won. And the rest is history. What could be better? Mr. Green? Mr. Green? Yeah. Want my Coke? It's okay. 
Okay, you can have it. Okay. Joe Green was probably the first black male that was cast in a, for a national brand. It was the fact that he was black and the little boy was white. It was a shock at that time, and people experienced it and really resonated to it. I don't know where that jersey went. I don't know if Joe took it back or who got it. I do know that that Christmas I got a package, and uh, it was a signed... Mean Joe Green jersey that I uh, still have to this day. But Tommy was not the only child whose life would be positively influenced by Joe Green. Here's Joe's wife, Agnes. I think uh, it changed our lives a lot. It changed Joe's personality a lot. Because so many kids were looking up to him, he decided he really wanted to be a role model for the kids. appeared with the Muppets and probably Elmo and was on children's TV shows. Well, you know, I used to be afraid of my own shadow. And then everybody told me that was silly. What are you afraid of? Well, lots of things. Like the whole offensive line of the Rams jumping on you. Yeah? We'd be walking around and little old ladies that I know didn't know anything about football would come up to Joe and talk to him. Listen, you're not a mean guy. He's just a big old teddy bear. Doing the Coca-Cola spot did change the image. I enjoyed it. I liked it. It made me uh, more approachable. To this day, I'm still rather amazed. I mean, it's the commercial that will not die. Although he was known to the world as Mean Joe, he is known to his grandkids as Papa Joe. When we went to uh, North Texas and you saw me interacting with the people and you were surprised. A little bit. Why? <laughs> um, I guess just because we know you as grandpa and then all these people are trying to talk to you and yeah. coming up to you. So okay. it's a little new. Yeah, these two, they had the same reaction. You didn't know. Like, whoa. The father of three and grandfather of seven credits the Coke ad with keeping him in the spotlight since his retirement in 1981. My public life, my football life, has been kept alive by the commercial. A few people might know me as Mean Joe, but a lot of them know me as the Coca-Cola guy. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Greg. The commercial that won't die. And it's so interesting that mean Joe Green became, for so many young people, sweet Joe Green, always to his kids and grandkids, Papa Joe. And what a terrific story about life. And in the end, the civilizing effect of kids on adults. 
Mean Joe Green's story, the Coca-Cola commercial story that the world fell in love with, here on Our American Stories. And to get all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. You'll get our five best stories each week. Again, Mean Joe Green's story here on Our American Stories. to know how to get Capone. Do you really want to get him? You see what I'm saying? What are you prepared to do? Everything within the law. And then what are you prepared to do? If you open the ball on these people, Mr. Nash, you must be prepared to go all the way. Because they won't give up the fight until one of you is dead. I want to get Capone. I don't know how to get him. Want to get Capone? Here's how you get him. He pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He sends one of yours to the hospital, you send one of his to the morgue. That's the Chicago way. That's how you get Capone. And you're listening to Sean Connery and Kevin Costner. And of course, that's the classic, The Untouchables. And the writer of those words, and my goodness, what words, is David Mamet. And his new book, Chicago, is just terrific. And it's a novel. And David is also a terrific playwright, and he has written such classics as American Buffalo and Glengarry Glen Ross, which itself became a classic film. He's also written and directed his own gems, House of Games, a classic about conmen, Homicide, The Spanish Prisoner, State of Maine. And he's also won acclaim for several screenplays, including The Verdict with Paul Newman, Wag the Dog, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Untouchables, Hoffa, and The Edge, which, by the way, get it on Netflix. Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. It's terrific. Well, we had a chance to sit down with David Mamet earlier, and here's our recorded conversation about his book, Chicago, and about his life. David, in this book, one of the characters, central characters, is the city itself, and it's a city you grew up in. What is Chicago? Tell people who've never been there, give them a feel for this city. How's it different than San Francisco or New York? Because it's not New York and it's not San Francisco. No, people said, I think it was Mencken who said that was the first American city that wasn't European was Chicago. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about this because, you know, I wrote the book and there's certainly a, I mean, it would be un-Chicagoan, but accurate to say there's an ethos there. But I was thinking perhaps of something different. Perhaps it's something to do with geography. Every time I go to to San Francisco, for the first hour, I'm saying, honey, send my clothes. I love it here. And after about four hours, I'm saying, yoke me out. Get me out of here. It's just something about the energy there that's it's odd. Maybe it's because of where I grew up. And then I think about the Los Angeles, think about the geographical energy here. That's this little spit of land, which is artificially maintained between 
this uncaring desert and this uncaring ocean. And there's a very bizarre kind of life that goes around. And if you think about Los Angeles literature, what there is of it, almost all of it takes place at night. It's, you know, Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Joseph Hansen and novels about mistaken identity and people not knowing who they are. It's all the same book. And it has something to do with geography. And if you go back and look at uh, Richard Henry Dana, you know, writing about landing on the coast here, just the south of Santa Barbara, and whatever that was, 1820 or 1830, he says the same thing. He says that the people didn't really live there. So there's something odd about these two cities to my sensibility. On the other hand, Chicago and New York have an internal energy that I think comes from geography. I mean, they're the confluence of a lot of... Um, uh, in, in both cases, of a great body of water, a great river system, and land transportation. That's why the people s settled there. And there's, I think, something intrinsic, I hate to say, in the rocks and stones, but maybe it is. But what do I know? Yeah, we did a terrific hour on not the Chicago fire, but what happened after, David. And by the way, it was an interesting story why the city built, burned down, because it had grown so fast in only 30 years. And all these buildings were crowded together in a long, arid summer, and poof, it goes up in smoke. What was remarkable, David, was how quickly Chicago rebuilt the energy and the power of the spirit of the people, the practicality and the, just the grit of these people. It was remarkable. Yeah, well, there's always been a great energy. You know, it's been a town of working people, you know, and, and New York has been a town of merchants and, um, uh, uh, and plutocrats, you know, that the... That's that's just what it is. I mean, to the point now where today, there's no lower class and no middle class in, in New York City. But Chicago's always been the working people. Yep. And and let's drill down a little bit on your childhood in Chicago, because you grew up here. This this place is in your blood. Uh, talk about, if you can, David, your dad, because I think so much of your writing, uh, I think, comes from that relationship, at least maybe not consciously, but certainly subconsciously. Talk about that. Well, my dad... And his brother Henry, um, all four of my grandparents are, are immigrants. They all came over from uh, Poland, which was then on the passports. It says Russia, Warsaw, Russia, and the uh, Russia was back and forth. At that time, it was controlled by Russia. Poland didn't exist for those 20 years. And um, my uncle was born over there. My dad's three years younger. He's born right over here. And they moved to, to Chicago from Brooklyn. And um, my dad was raised by a single mother, my, my grandmother. And most of his life in the Depression, and she didn't speak English very well, and so they were very poor. And he worked real hard. He got in, got out of the Army, and he went to a junior college, and then he got into Northwestern University Law School. And I, I think he I think he might have forged his uh, credentials to get into Northwestern University Law School. And he graduated first in his class because he just he was wicked smart. And um, he went to work. He clerked for Arthur Goldberg for a while, then he worked for um, Elmer Gertz was a very famous Chicago attorney. So there's that. So that before Levittown, there was this community, I think it was the first planned community after the war, called Park Forest, Illinois. And so I think I was like one, we moved down to Park Forest, and there's early Kodachrome films of these wonderful little brick houses the size of somebody's small garage today, you know, and Everybody was happy as a clam, you know, because these were poor immigrant kids, depression kids, war kids, and all of a sudden, because of the GI Bill and the uh, uh, the building of these uh, uh, developments, they could have a house. Something was just the, the impossible dream. And then we moved to a community called South Shore. It was a little Jewish enclave of a few blocks between a uh, 
Catholic neighborhood and a black neighborhood. Black, black neighborhood was the other side of Stony Island, and the Catholic neighborhood was the other side of 71st Street, and there's like five square blocks of Jews living there, and we used to get beat up all the time. And um, the, uh, the neighborhood was kind of interesting. Some interesting people came out of that little, it's called South Shore Highlands, I think. I I came out of the Larry Ellison, who founded Oracle, came out of there, and Sherry Lansing, who was the head of Columbia for many, many years, came out of there, and uh, uh, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times came out. There were several other people who did rather well coming out of this little dinky enclave. And when we come back, we learn what happens to David Mamet, and my goodness, how far he came from this little dinky part of Chicago. More with our conversation with David Mamet after these messages. Chicago, Chicago, that toddling town. Chicago. This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with novelist, playwright, screenwriter David Mamet and his new book, Chicago. We're talking about his life and the town he grew up in, and David entering high school. And so I went to the public schools when my last couple of years of uh, high school. I moved in with my dad, my stepmother, Judy. I went to a magnificent school called the Francis Parker School and started, became friendly with the family that owned Second City. And I started working as a, as a busboy at Second City. So I'd see three shows a night of improvisational comedy, which really gave me the bug. And then uh, there we are up to date. Talk about, if you can, the influence of your dad. That is, psychologically. You know, it, it sounded to me like he was one of those old-school tough guys and nothing you could do would quite measure up. You, you have a quote in, a, in an article in New Yorker where you said, the virtues expounded by him were not creative but remedial. Let's stop being Jewish and let's stop being poor. Talk about those kinds of words. Well, you know, I, I think about my dad many times every day with thanks. And he grew up in a family without a father. His father deserted the family. And so he was raised by a marvelous mother, my grandmother, whom he adored. But he was a little bit of an old school father. But the most more important thing is that he was a magnificent role model because he worked like a dog. He would work all day and come home and change into his pajamas in a bathrobe and then eat his dinner sitting at the dining room table while working on the brief for the next day. And one day he was working really hard. He was very anxious. I said, you know, Dad, I said, you know, don't worry about the results. You're doing your best. And he said, they don't pay me to do my best. They pay me to win. So a lot of times I'm thinking of giving up and the times that I don't give in to giving up. Uh, I, I remember, you know, like, like him, I got the best job in the world and I have a talent for it and it pays the rent. So I, I better work hard at it. You know, there's a quote in that other New York, that New York article I told you about that was, I think, telling. You say, quote, uh, your time at the Hull House Theater in Chicago. It was the first time in my confused young life that I had learned that work is love. Talk about that. Well, Hull House there, there was a great theater run by a man named Bob Sickinger. And all the community theaters around the country were doing Charlie's Aunt and the Impossible Years. And once in a while, if they were really bold they do the importance of being earnest you know but sickinger was doing the brig by uh, 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 kenneth brown 
and the Three Penny Opera and the Maurice Scal plays. And he just kept everybody there all night rehearsing. And we all knew, I don't know how he knew, but we did, that when we were doing those plays, there wasn't any better theater being done that night any place in the world. It was just, it was just pure love and, and, you know, people who hurried home from 12 hours at their straight job and spent 12 hours working with Bob. It was, it was marvelous. One of your colleagues said, we invented this myth of the Chicago theater scene. What made the Chicago scene so great was that no one cared. The audience didn't care. They were profoundly indifferent to everything we did. There is real freedom in that, isn't there, David? Well, there is, but you know, I don't know who said that, because I don't know whether that's that, true. That was Gregory Mosher said that. Oh, Greg said that. Yeah. No, but no, that's not, that's, I think that's a little bit poetic, because what I remember is quite the opposite. When I had, you know, me and Billy Macy and Steve Schachter, Patty Cox, we had our theater over on, on Halstead Street, and um, people would come up to you on the street, neighborhood people, and they'd say, hey, there was a good play last month, Dave. They understand that they're entitled to have a good time, and uh, no one's asking them to be esthetes. But rather, we're grateful for them to show up. And if they say, geez, that was great, I'm going to tell my friends, what could be better? I don't think they were indifferent. I, th- I think that two things made the theater scene. One was the audience, and the other one was uh, Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News. And what, what were your thoughts about critics as you were a young writer coming up? I mean, it, it's, 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 uh, they're assholes. You know, I mean, they were then, they are now, but there are exceptions. And a couple of the great exceptions came out of the city of Chicago, and one of them was Roger Ebert, rest in peace, along with Gene Siskel, who did a lot to shape American movie making, and the other one was Richard Christensen of the Chicago Daily News, along with Glenna Sice of the Sun-Times, to encounter critics who said, wow, this is great, thank you, here's what I liked. They understood themselves as part of the theatrical process, rather than uh, as, as people who are given a, a free ride uh, to CARP. Well, you've done something that very few people have done. We've had some novelists make their way to screenwriting, and that's happened quite a number of times for Mario Puzio. I mean, we could name a lot of folks who've written novels and written great great screenplays. But you go ahead and you start this thing called screenwriting, which is so different, David. It's such a different talent. So many actors have a hard time going from the big screen to the big stage. It's such a different craft. Um, How did you, did you just do it? Did you just have a sense for it? Uh, Talk about that transition. Well, I worked hard at it. You know, when I was a kid, I went to the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater in New York for a year. And before you came, they gave you a reading list of about 50 books. So, of course, I read them. I loved them. And a lot of them were by the Russians and uh, Stanislavski and uh, Vakhtangov and Meyerhold and Nemovich Danchenko and they all wrote a book. And some of them were by the people who'd worked with the Moscow Art Theater and then went into film. And I was really fascinated by their theory of filmmaking. And what they said was, the audience understands film as the juxtaposition of images. The image doesn't need to be inflected. The juxtaposition tells the story. The famous example is a young woman, shot one, a young woman, her head is down on her arms. She raises her head. Shot two, a judge sitting at a high dais wraps his gavel. Okay. Example two, shot woman, shot one, same shot, young woman, her head on her hand, she raises her head. Shot two, uh, half seen through a door, a baby standing up in a crib crying, right? So the, the idea we get from the first is hearing the verdict, 
and the idea we get from the second is a mother's attention, but the first shot's exactly the same. So if you look at what great film actors are doing, they're doing damn little. What they have is the great courage and understanding not to help the thing along. You write a lot about this in True and False, by the way. You have a, you have a lot to say in that book about acting, but one of the interesting things was, was what you had to say about the method acting and, uh, and a lot of the things that were being taught in New York at the time. And I don't think you were a terribly big fan of the method to be charitable, David. Well, there's nothing there. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a fake. It was Lee Strasberg and my teacher, Stanford Meisner, were the, both the babies of the group theater. And, you know, they were both started out actors didn't do well. So they became directors and theoreticians and they formed two schools. Uh, the Meisner School and the Strasberg School that were an attempt on their part, legitimate attempt, to understand what acting was because they were drawn to it, they loved it, they couldn't do it, they tried to understand it. So what Lee Strasberg did, I don't think he did it on purpose, he just got very, very lucky, is he had a, a, a beginning reputation and so everybody in the country wanted to get into the actor's studio. So he would see a thousand actors and pick two. So who's he going to pick? He picks the people with the greatest talent, right? So they are going to reflect glory on the actor's studio, not from anything that he taught them, but from the fact that, that he chose them. Yeah, and so all of that psychological warfare, that the, and I studied with a couple of these characters, and they were more Svengali than anything else. I was repulsed. I had played basketball and played sports, and sports is all about activity and action. It's doing. And in large measure, these people were putting me on a couch, and I, I actually resented it, David. Well, it's terrible, and what it, it, it calls for a, um, a codependence, uh, a folly between the teacher and, and the student. And the, the teacher has to you know, pretend he's teaching something, he may think he is, and the student has to pretend he's learning something, he may think he is. But what he's really undergoing is shame. And so the only way that he can overcome his shame is either to just quit and say, fuck you, I'll figure it out myself, or to say, let me try harder. So what you see is a lot of actors who, quote, study the, quote, method, trying harder, which all that does take you out of the scene. And when we come back more with David Mamet, we promise not to take you out of the scene. Indeed, we're going to put you in a scene as we go out. The movie Glengarry Glen Ross, based on Mamet's play. In this scene, Alec Baldwin is giving a motivational speech to some real estate salesman in a rainy office in downtown Chicago. As you all know, first prize is a Cadillac Eldorado. Anybody want to see second prize? Second prize is a set of steak knives. Third prize is you're fired. You get the picture? You laughing now? You got leads. Mitch and Murray paid good money. Get their names to sell them.
And we return to our conversation with author David Mamet, the book, Chicago. Let's pick up where we left off. You have a, there's almost a, a running theme in a lot of what you write, David, about the expert culture. And you have this great line. And by the way, long before you came to conservatism, there was a line I'll never forget you wrote. And I'm, I'm approximating, and I don't remember where I read it, but it said something like this. And you were speaking directly to me, who's trying to get direction from these gurus, when in the end you were saying, find it yourself, dummy. It's okay. And you said, if you want to learn how to act, uh, act. If you want to learn how to write, write. If you want to learn how to direct, direct. The audience will teach you. Uh, don't go to college. Don't listen to that professor. You were really encouraging all of us, young actors, young artists, young writers, to write in front of audiences as quickly as possible and learn from that experience, which, of course, David, even though at the time you didn't know it, that's a very free market idea that the audience, the consumers, the market will teach. Yeah, well, I guess it, yeah, I guess it was. But, I mean, they certainly taught. I don't know any other way to learn how to write a, a, a play and to put it on in front of an audience because if you're writing for a teacher – You've just uh, uh, subjected yourself to slavery. You're saying everything's dependent. I'm not a free person. Everything's dependent on the opinion of someone else. When in fact, the opinion of the audience is not is not mitigated through intellectuality. They're going to give you, uh, like Billy Wilder said, ind- individually they may be dumb cuffs, but collectively they're a genius. Yeah. You know that. And when when you got to when your life and you're living your livelihood and your self-respect depends on a verdict from which there is no appeal you're probably going to start paying attention to it. And we're talking to David Mamet. His book is Chicago. It's a novel. Pick it up. The dialogue from the beginning, he'll own you. We're going to get to that in a little bit, a little bit more about his life. By the way, Mario Andretti's life, go to ouramericannetwork.org. It's up there. We finished it. It's beautiful. Billy Graham's life, that's up there. And Johnny Cash, tomorrow night is his birthday. And we celebrate it. We celebrate it every year. You're going to hear from Johnny. You're going to hear from Rick Rubin and a lot of musicians. It's a remarkable hour. OurAmericanNetwork.org. David, you write about talent and you write about courage. And you say this. You said a concern with one's talent is like a concern with one's height. It is an attempt to appropriate prerogatives which the gods have already exercised. Talk about talent. I don't know what it is. You know, a lot of people... I, I'm doing a bunch of publicity because um, I just wrote this book, and so I kind of like people to know about the book. But I stopped doing publicity for years and years and years because it made me feel stupid. And I said to one guy, I said, one guy, I just started doing publicity. He said, why, why did you stop doing publicity? I said, because it made me feel stupid. And I said, well, and he said, well, that's ridiculous. I said, well, see. Because <laughs> what, I, what I realized, most of the questions that get asked are unanswerable. They're, in effect, rhetorical questions, which are statements. Right. Say, my God, how did you do those rhetorical questions? There's no answer to it. I don't know. You know, it beats the hell out of me. I could sit on and try to figure it out, but it ain't going to help you. Now, one of the great geniuses of modern life, I think, is Bill Waterston, who did um, uh, Calvin and Hobbes, right? And I love Calvin and Hobbes, but Bill, later on in his career, did a, a kind of compendium, and he said, oh, here's how I got this idea, here's how I got that idea. And he just, he, t- he knocked the sheen off it. I thought, man, you're coming very close to talking me out of appreciating the, uh, I don't want to know how you did it. Right. And P.S., you don't know how you did it. That's so true. And, and all the mystery's gone, and, and, and don't tidy it up for me, and don't explain what it all means. What's the, uh, the, the, just the worst questions for artists, and they're even worse for the audience, David. 
By the way, in that same thing on talent, you wrote this, a common sign in a boxing gym. Boxers are ordinary men with extraordinary determination. I would rather be able to consider myself in that way than to consider myself one of the talented. And if I may, I think you would too. Talk about courage, David. It's a, it's something that I think is in short supply. And I think you, in your own way, write a bit about that as well. Well, I mean, there's a great line in, in Three Kings where it's uh, George Clooney and He's head of a, he's in charge of some platoon and some about to go into combat. And the kid says, I'm scared. And George says, uh, well, you know, you got to do the acting and get the courage afterward. And the kid says, that's fucked. And George says, yeah, you bet it is, but that's the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> so true. Let's talk about your, your faith walk, if we can. I mean, and, and you start to write in, in the mid 2000s about being Jewish and what that means. Um, talk about this exploration into faith and religion. Well, I got married in 1991, and uh, my wife, who is uh, she has a bunch of uh, Jewish ancestors on her one side of her family. She grew up in Scotland. Her parents are British, and they were of no particular religion. And she said, "Well, we have to have a Jewish wedding." I said, "Well, what an odd thing to say. Well, what? Why? Why is that?" She said, "Well, you're Jewish." And I thought, "Well, gosh, that's true." So she started taking introduction to Judaism classes for uh, people not of, not, of, not of Jewish faith. And I started going with her class. I realized I don't know anything. I was raised in this uh, Episcopal reform movement in Chicago. It was completely assimilationist. And it was like, you know, it was like taking the bath in cold water with your clothes on. There was just nothing to it. And that the, the assimilationist streak of American Jews especially after World War II, is completely understandable. I mean, I was born in 47 and 45. They were throwing my people alive into ovens, for Christ's sake. It's no, it's no wonder that the Jews wanted to assimilate, but they threw out the baby with the bathwater. Yeah, uh, so we started investigating Judaism, so she converted, and we started going to synagogue and learned Hebrew and found, my God, this is this is a magnificent religion. And all you know, all of us, Red diaper babies who said, "Oh my God, the magnificence of the Inuit, or the magnificence of the American Indian, or the magnificence of the African American, or the blah blah blah." Why is it that my particular ethnicity is the only one that doesn't have a beautiful tradition? And we found out, uh, in effect, that it does. Yeah, and a pretty old one too, David. A pretty old one. And yeah. it's amazing. I think it's fascinating that people go through this world not knowing who or what they are. And it must have been something to you to discover your own history. It was grand. I mean, the other thing about history is that the people who came over in like right around world, before and after World War One was my my grandparents. They left everything behind. I mean, the idea that one would know one's great grandparents or one's great uncle was unheard of. I mean, everybody I knew in my little community growing up. Their, either their parents or their grandparents were immigrants. They had no artifacts from the old country. They, they didn't have that many relatives from the country. If they had any at all, they probably either got killed by Hitler or Stalin. And the kids were being raised in this uh, kind of phony, baloney, fuzzy little bunnies uh, uh, reform movement. And Judaism was reduced to, quote, good works. It was, it was reduced to the Democratic Party. And when we come back, more of our conversation with David Mamet, author of Chicago. We're going to dig into the book. Right now, we want to throw to a clip from one of the great pieces of writing from Mamet, and it's the 1982 screenplay 
from the movie The Verdict. Here's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin, a once promising Boston attorney who was fired from an elite firm because he was an alcoholic. This Irish Catholic guy, down on his luck, gets handed a case from a friend. It's an open and shut med mal case, and he should probably just take the money. But he goes to visit a girl in a coma, and he sees her, and his Catholic conscience is sparked, and he becomes a lawyer again. This is his remarkable closing argument. We become weak. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our beliefs. We doubt our institutions. And we doubt the law. But today, you are the law. You are the law. Not some book. Not the lawyers. Not a a marble statue. Or the trappings of the court. See, those are just symbols of our desire to be just. They are, they are in fact a prayer, a fervent and a frightened prayer. In my religion, they say act as if you had faith. Faith will be given to you. If we are to have faith in justice, we need only to believe in ourselves and act with justice. I believe there is justice in our hearts. Turn to our conversation with novelist, screenwriter, and playwright David Mamet, and we had left off talking about David's spiritual journey, and we continue now with our recorded conversation. I would assume that your 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 exploration into faith, almost inexorably, David, led you into a sort of a political transformation. One probably prompted the other in some respects, didn't it? Well, I think you're probably right. You know, for example, I'll tell you this. I wrote a book called The Wicked Son because I started thinking it's called anti-Semitism and the, and the Jewish self-loathing and the Jews. And I started thinking about Jewish anti-Semitism and Jewish assimilationism. I thought very long and hard about it. Wrote a pretty good book and Fran Lebowitz read it. And she said, oh my God, wait till you see what the left is going to do to you. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. I mean, you know, I'm on the left. I don't know what the left would find objectionable to about the book. But apparently some people got upset because I was telling the truth. And so the more I studied uh, 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 Judaism and, uh, and uh, Jewish literature and the, and the Torah, the more I realized that that's flat out the inspiration for the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, that it comes absolutely from a Judeo-Christian understanding of the world, and that that understanding has, has kept us together for and fighting for 240 years. Indeed, and 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 what's what's fascinating about this this journey of yours, David, is that ultimately you end up writing a, an article in the Village Voice, and I don't think anyone was prepared for that. And were you at the reaction? Well, I wasn't prepared for it because the article that the title that they gave to the article 
was the original title of the article was political civility because I, my rabbi at the time been speaking very very vehemently about about respecting each other's opinion and uh, hearing the other fellow out and having the ability to tell the other guy's opinion back to him such that he says yes that's true and so I wrote an article called Political Civility, and in the article I said, I said I, I, I'm even being uncivil to myself. I said, for example, for years I've been referring to myself as a brain dead liberal. I say, well, that's just not civil, but boo. So the Village Voice takes it and they put a scare headline on it: yep. "Why I am no longer a brain dead liberal," and all my friends became acquaintances. Let's talk about fiction because this this book. It's about so much, and I don't like giving away too much, but it's about a place, it's about a time. And I, I'm going to quote J.J. Johnston to you, because he's a great actor from Chicago, and he said of you this, Dave got hit with the gangster bag early. These crooks, most of them have pipe dreams. They can't do anything right. Like they say, these guys would F up a two-car funeral. And so these wise guys, this edgy part of life that was a big part of Chicago— well, it becomes a big part of your book. Uh, talk about why a piece of fiction now and why this book. And it feels like it's hitting so many of the themes you've been playing with your entire life. Well, I was just having a time in my life. I started writing one afternoon. You know, I just got sick of myself for being such a lazy swine and got to be four o'clock. So I started writing a little sketch about something rather in Chicago. The next day I wrote another one. After a while, I said, oh, maybe there's a book here. And uh, when you grow up in Chicago, you grow up with, uh, you know, just like um, uh, in, in Naples, you know, you grow up, you're going to be expected to sing. In Chicago, the, the ethos, at least that we grew up with in my generation on the south side, was the gangster ethos. That's where Al Capone lived. Your great-grandmother brought him groceries. He once gave a turkey to your aunt. Oh, that's where the cop, blah, blah, blah. That's where Dean O'Banion got shot. I went to high school across the street from the garage where they had the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And uh, I used to walk in the park where Nails Morton's horse kicked him to death. And that's kind of, those were kind of like the, the bumping posts, if you will, of, of Chicago geography. It's all gangsters. Yep. And, and the, the process of writing for you, uh, it, it's, you know, I, I have something here of you talking about how at least when you were writing movies, you hit it on file cards first, and then you said, when the progression of incidents is so clear that you no longer need the cards, then you're ready to write. And then we learn that you write very fast once that happens. That true still for this and, and for you? Well, a, a, a novel's really, really different because you get you get to muck about, you know. You get to expatiate a little bit. And, uh, but there's two things that the, 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 are equally important in a play and perhaps less equally important than a novel. In a play, there has to be the immediacy of the line. The line has to be beautiful and poetic and line has to make sense. The second one is every line has to put forward the plot. If both of those things aren't true, you might have a, a, an okay play, but you're not going to have a good and you'll never have a great play. It has to do both things. Whichever you do first, you're going to have to do the second one second. If you start off and you write a plot of the play, you're going to have to go back and make sure that each line each instance of each interchange stands by itself rather than simply being tendentious and putting forward the plot. And if you do the other thing, you write this great scene but doesn't put forward the plot, you either got to throw it out and start again or make it put forward the plot. Because all dramatic writing is about making the audience wonder what happens next. 
Yep. But you can make them wonder what happens next and also delight them in what's happening. Now you're writing a pretty good play. Yep. So you need, both of these things need to be done in a novel too, but perhaps the, the, the plot is not as important. You get, you get to say, oh, by the way. Yeah. You get to take detours. In fact, that's why people read. They want a good detour from, from now and then. But, you know, you're, you're almost talking like uh, Hitchcock was listening to Truffaut and, and on that great interview that we've covered once here on this show. I mean, Hitchcock was the master at moving that plot and hurt. I mean, his plots hurtled along and the characters just hurtled along with them. Yeah, um, absolutely. And uh, talk and talk of do you, do you teach anymore, David? Do you have an inclination to teach? You used to teach. I'd seen you teach. It 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 it, it was really remarkable because you weren't a typical teacher. You weren't playing this Fingali game at all. You were an anti-teacher teacher, almost like a Bear Bryant. You were more like a coach than you were a teacher. And then you were pushing people out to do stuff. Uh, do you have any inclination to do that anymore at this stage of your life? Well, you know that's that's a, that's a very gratifying to hear you say that because I said you know. I don't have a lot of respect for most teachers. I've seen a lot of them, you know, both in the uh, private schools and public schools, schools I worked at, schools I sent my kids to. Some of them are geniuses. Some of them are time servers, just like any other profession. But I don't think the fact that someone's a teacher entitles them to our respect flat out. Let's see how good they do. But what we remember it all through our lives is the coach. It's true. Our, we did an hour on Bear Bryant, uh, David, and we talked to people who hadn't been under his influence for 40 years. Every single one of them had a moment and a memory, and it was all the same. He taught me how to be a man. He taught me how to dig deeper. It wasn't the actual X's and O's. It was something so much more spiritual. It had a spiritual dimension to it. And it was this guy seeing these guys' capacity and that there was more inside them than they knew. And uh, I just think there are very few people who have that gift. And you had it, and I, I'm sure you still have it. And the question I'd always, I always ask people is when we have these gifts, uh, does God command us to, to apply those gifts? Um, well, so that, that's why I ask. These guys came to me last year. They're, they're doing some um, downloadable thingy called Masterclass. And they have a bunch of celebrities, actors and writers and uh, uh, physicists and blah, blah, blah. And they asked me what I do. And I said, and I thought about it. I said, yeah, sure. So I was in the, the studio for several days and um, they added it down to, I think, a five, it might be even five hours. And they prepared it magnificently. And they talked me through various aspects of writing and dramatic construction and uh, uh, so forth. And I'm very happy that I did that. And uh, I teach once in a while back at my theater company. I'm a member of New York, the Atlantic Theater Company. But um, I enjoy, I, I, I kind of enjoy it too much. You know, I, and, and I, I, I don't want to get in the kid's way. <laughs> well, that's so true. We felt, I felt that just sitting in on two in New York, that you didn't want to get in our way. And that shows a lot of faith in us in the end and not in yourself. Uh, David Mamet is the writer Chicago is the book. It's a novel. Pick it up at Amazon.com. Chicago, again, at Amazon. We'll put it up on our website and take a listen. And, uh, David, thank you so much for this time. Oh, you're so welcome. We're done. Oh, boo-hoo. I'm having such a good time. <laughs> it was terrific, David. And that was our recorded conversation with author David Mamet, his new book, Chicago. Go to Amazon.com now and get it. The dialogue crackles. It's everything you'd ever expect from a David Mamet novel or any piece of writing and by the way, you know his work from Glengarry Glen Ross. You know it from movies. We played a clip from The Verdict with Paul Newman. And of course, we're going to leave with another clip. But again, David Mamet, Chicago. It's a novel. You won't be able to put it down. Pick it up at a store near you or go online. And again, 
the novel Chicago by David Mamet. And so we leave with a clip and go and pick up this movie on Netflix if you get a chance called The Edge 1997, and it stars Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Hopkins is a billionaire, has a beautiful bride, and Alec Baldwin is a, well, he's a photographer with an eye for that young bride. There's a plane crash in the Alaska wild. Uh, Kodiak Bear is on the hunt for the party that's lost. And it takes the old man to teach this young guy how to fight this stalking bear or die. And here's a pep scene in which the older Hopkins is trying to stir the courage of the younger paramour played by Alec Baldwin. Oh, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it, I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. Say I'm going to kill the bear. Say it. I'm going to kill the bear. Say it again. I'm going to kill the bear. And again. I'm going to kill the bear. Good. What one man can do, another can do. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. Say it again. What one man can do, another can do. Yeah. You're damn right. This is Our American Stories, and again, the novel Chicago and the author David Mamet. Pick up the book however you can. Thank you.